Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 168. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Rich Kimball here, joined by Carrie Haskell, as always, from our Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Maine. Got a couple of uh, good conversations for you on the podcast this time around. A little bit later on, filmmakers Aaron Gaudet and Gita Palapoli will talk with us about their brand new movie. It's called Queen Pins and stars Kristen Bell, Vince Vaughn, Paul Walter Hauser, a terrific cast in a comedy that will premiere in September. The trailer is out now, and we'll talk with them about the making of the film. Up first, though, a sports writer who has been getting it done for more than 50 years now, longtime columnist for the Boston Globe, a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. He has written a number of books about people like Ted Williams, Babe Ruth, and many more. His newest is a wonderful look back at the 1969 NBA Finals, Lakers and the Celtics, uh, through the eyes of, well, a young Lee Monfield, uh, looking back at his writings and impressions at the time from the vantage point of some 52 years later. The book is called Tall Men, Short Shorts. Here's Lee Monfield on Downtown. Lee, thank you for being with us. Glad to be with you. Love the lens that you lo- used to look back at the 1969 Finals uh, through through the eyes of a younger Lee Montville, through the other people who were covering the series and basketball at that time. And I, I thought it made for such a compelling read. Yeah, I, I didn't know how to attack it, really, you know. It's my 77-year-old self writing about my 25-year-old self and kind of looking at at some of the foibles that the 25-year-old has that I kind of recognize now. You know, I mean, you're 25 years old, you, you have that mixture of overconfidence and fear kind of pushing you along and you're the the brash young guy and you say let's get the deadwood out of here let me move into the future and you know then the years pass and you're the deadwood all of a sudden so it's it's an interesting perspective that that the 25 year old had and the 77 year old has also well and you got the assignment of covering the finals in many ways because I guess at the time, the, the Bruins were a bigger story. Yeah. Um, this is how long ago it was in the world of journalism and that, that the guy, Herb Ralby, who, who covered the Celtics and, and had covered a bunch of championships, um, he was also the PR director for the Boston Bruins. And he had been able to go to all the playoffs through the years because the Bruins had uniformly stunk. They in, in a six-team league where four teams made the playoffs, they hadn't made the playoffs for like seven or eight years. But all of a sudden, this uh, this young fellow named Bobby Orr had showed up, <laughs> and uh, the Bruins were good. And so now Herb Ralby had to had to stay at home and take care of all those press requests uh, from around the country, from Canada, um, to see the Bruins play first the Toronto Maple Leafs and then the Montreal Canadiens. Well, on so, the basketball. So they looked at the bench and they found this year old guy and said, get in there, champ. There you go. Well, on the basketball court, uh, the Celtics had had such a great run of success, but it seemed in some quarters like in 1969, 
might be the end of that run. As you point out, they struggled, finished just fourth in their division, and, and they were viewed by many as an aging team whose best years were behind them. Yeah, very much so. You know, when they finished fourth, and and and, uh, and Russell, Bill Russell was 35 years old, Sam Jones was 35 years old, and a bunch of other players had, had left, um, and they, they were kind of going on fumes. And uh, lo and behold, they got in the playoffs, though, and they were able to, you know, patch everything together and, and with, with bubble gum and, and sealing tape and wax and stuff and, and go out there and, and beat both the, the, the Philadelphia 76ers and the New York Nets. And lo and behold, they were in the finals against, against the Lakers, which was such a big surprise because I, I don't think my bosses had ever figured that I would be the guy going to the NBA finals <laughs> in Los Angeles. They thought the Celtics were going to be doomed in the, in the early rounds. We're talking with Lee Montville on downtown. Of course, the story of this series is about Bill Russell versus Wilt Chamberlain, but you bring to life so many of the other characters. And uh, I, I love I love reading about the, the lesser lights at the time, the people like Larry Siegfried, Don Nelson, who would come over from the Lakers, and, and those were the stories that really captured me. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they were the ones that kind of made the Celtics go and kept it all together, these kind of fringe guys that... that uh, Red Arback, who was still around as the general manager, had pulled into the fray. Um, Emmett Bryant, another guy who, who had virtually no success, and all of a sudden he's playing for a world championship. Uh, and Russell just made everything work, you know? Um, you and I probably could have played with Bill Russell and won an NBA championship. Um, he, he just was so good for all the other players and, and made them so much better. The, the way he he controlled everything on defense and set everything up for a fast break. We would have had to run faster than we run now. <laughs> uh, it's also a clash in, in cities and styles, in facilities, the old Boston Garden, the fabulous Forum out west, and, and also two of the giants in, in broadcasting history, Johnny Most and Chick Hearn. Oh, yeah. Um, and... and People now don't realize how big those broadcasters were. Um, television was not a big factor. Only two of the seven games were on television in Boston, the finals, and only three of the seven were on television in, in Los Angeles. They had the blackout rule for, for local games. So every game that was played in your home city, um, you, you blacked it out to make sure that you'd have a, a standing room only attendance, which was kind of a, a, a shaky business concept as it turned out, but, uh, but that's the way it was. So the, the radio guys were huge. Um, uh, every kid, every kid in Massachusetts could do a Johnny most impression. <laughs> and, uh, I, I would think everybody in Los Angeles could do Chick Hearn. Um, Johnny had, had that gravel voice, you know, um, braids in his shirt, you know, and, and, uh, and, and Chick Hearn had a staccato kind of thing. And he, he threw out these various basketball terms that he invented, and they've become part of uh, part of uh, our general lexicon of the sport. Yeah, I was surprised to read that things like slam dunk, air ball, those were invented by Chick Hearn. Yeah, while well, he was talking about it, you know, <laughs> they they just kind of fell out of his uh, fell out of his uh, head, and you 
you had to pay attention and pick them up on the on the way. You know, it was uh, it, it was kind of a basketball poetry he was speaking there. Well, the Celtics were also in an unusual position in this series in that they were they were the underdogs and also didn't have that home court advantage that they enjoyed for most of the previous decade. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, they they had beaten the Lakers times in in the finals, the Lakers and Jerry West, and every time they had the, the home court advantage. And the way it all played out here, um, it. It looked like the home court advantage was, was going to be the key thing because the Lakers won the first two games in Los Angeles. Then the Celtics came back, won the won the third game pretty easily. Then in the fourth game, had a miracle shot to win the game and tie up the series. and And then it became the best of three, and the teams split again on their home courts, and it got down to the seventh game at, at, at the fabulous forum and. Uh, it, it, it all indications were that it was going to go the same way. Well, let's go to that miracle shot. Game four of the series, the Celtics with their backs against the wall, and they ran what, uh, well, as you point out, movie fans might know as the picket fence from Hoosiers, but was actually the, the secret uh, the secret play that uh, John Havlicek and Larry Siegfried had cooked up back at Ohio State. Yeah, they, they had used it a couple of times at Ohio State, and they put it in. Um, not too long be- before this game, and they they had timed it out that it it, it could be done in in seven seconds or or or, or over that, and th- there were just about seven seconds left, and they just said let's run that play, and it it involved a, a three three Celtics uh, setting picks for Sam Jones and Sam running around behind those three guys, Havlicek passing them the ball, and. Sam came around the three guys. Everything was very good, except then he slipped and he, he threw the ball up off his wrong foot. And he said he was hoping that Bill Russell would get the rebound, but he forgot that Bill Russell had taken himself out. So the ball went up, it bounced off the rim, went high in the air, and came down through the hoop. And uh, bingo, the Celtics were alive. They never would have won this thing if they if that shot hadn't fallen. Well, and there were so many of those shots, and, and the Lakers talked about it, and, and the idea of the, the leprechauns uh, that Red Auerbach's brother had designed. Did the Lakers really believe that by the end of this series that they were somehow cursed to always lose to the Celtics? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, and, and when when the Lakers won, that, that you know, to make it a, a three-to-two thing in, in – uh, to make it a three to three to two situation in, in Los Angeles before they came back to Boston for the sixth game, Jerry West pulled a hamstring muscle. There, things always seem to happen to the Lakers, and, and indeed they happened in the seventh game again. Uh, things things just didn't go the way they planned. And Jerry West, who, who was so great early in the series, 53 points in game one. And, and while he was able to score, he wasn't the same guy after that injury. And he, he comes across as such a, a tragic figure in your book as a guy who just seems uh, uh, to have accepted his faith that this will always happen to me when I play the guys in green. Yeah. I mean, Chick Hearn's nickname for him was Mr. Clutch. And he, he was Mr. Clutch, except when it came to playing against the Celtics. So things just happened. And uh, and th- this was his big chance because they had Chamberlain, and Chamberlain was supposed to, you, you, you know, 
at least negate Bill Russell and kind of put the series on an even footing. And uh, it, it just didn't turn out that way. No, and in that seventh game, when Chamberlain went down with an injury, he wanted to go back in the game. Butch Van Bredikoff wouldn't put him back in there, and that uh, certainly caused some tension. And then uh, with some comments that Bill Russell made in the offseason, some tension between the two of them that didn't get resolved for a couple of decades. Yeah, no, I mean, Wilt caught, took himself out, and they were they were behind by nine points. They'd been behind by more and with, with a, a knee injury. And uh, the, the Lakers got closer and closer, and then Wilt said, I'm ready to go back in. And it was one of the the gutsiest, I guess, um, coaching decisions in all time. You know that that Von Bradikoff said, "No, sit down, we're okay," and he played a, a seven foot journeyman named Mel Counts instead, and he put all his his future right there because if if he won the game with Mel Counts instead of Chamberlain, I suppose he would have been acclaimed as a, a basketball genius. But instead, he lost by keeping Will Chamberlain on the bench. And, you know, Chamberlain had been brought in for big money to, to win the whole title. This was why he was there. And the coach uh, sat him down at, at the key moment. And the coach was gone by Thursday. It was also interesting to read about Bill Russell, the coach, and uh, how he comported himself. And when things went wrong, he would... Well, he would blame the starting center quite often and uh, fine him, make him do uh, extra extra sprints and punish him along with the rest of the team. And I thought it was also very interesting that guys like Havlicek said that you know, they did some of the coaching themselves and how could Bill Russell be expected to make decisions when he was often exhausted playing 48 minutes every night out there? Well, yeah, I mean, you couldn't imagine that situation happening today. He had no assistant coaches, zero. He was the whole show. Um, he was the, the starting MVP center, you know, I mean, for years and years. And now he was the coach also. And uh, it, it, it's inconceivable. You look at those teams now, the, the other night, the, the NBA final, each of those coaches had about 15 people behind them, you know, wearing those little <laughs> zipper, zipper pullover things, you know, and they, they were all getting paid to do some kind of coaching. I guess they, I guess they have a coach for you know what you should eat for lunch, and then another coach about <laughs> what you should eat for dinner, and another coach on what you should wear coming to the game. You know, and Russell was in charge of everything. It was unbelievable. Now you had uh, double duty in covering the NBA Finals, not only uh, writing the game account and, and sidebars, but also you were the guy assigned the duty of reminding Bill Russell to call in his column after each game. And that's another thing that he added, you know. He he, he became a columnist for the Boston Globe, uh, getting 200 bucks a night to, to just phone in his thoughts to uh, to a kid from Northeastern on a, on, a, on a dictaphone record, and they would type it up and put it in the paper for what Bill Russell said. Uh, and my job, and it, I... I had a tough relationship with him. You know, he was, he was kind of, um, he was rich and famous in 35 and I, I, I was small and not famous in 25. <laughs> and, uh, every night at the end of the game, when everybody left, I had to say, Bill, uh, don't forget about the globe, call the globe. And he would kind of grunt. Yeah. You know, and 
I would go go back to the hotel or wherever and, and wonder if he had called. And he did. He called just about every time. And then on top of all that, the, the late Will McDonough assigned you the task of asking Russell uh, after Game 7 if he was going to retire. Yeah, um, it, 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 there were there a million stories going on, and, and, and McDonough came up to me and he said, uh, I've heard that Russell might retire. Um, wait till nobody's around, and, and you just ask him if he wants to re- if he's going to retire. And I said, well, why don't you ask him? And he said, Bill Russell hates me. He would never talk to me. So I, I said, okay. And I added that to my list of things, and I kept checking, and there were people around him and people around him. And in the end, he was finishing up dressing, just about ready to go. And he was with Jim Brown, the the, the retired football player, the movie star. Um, and they, they were obviously going out on the town. And so I said, well, I, I got to go over there. And here's the two guys that were kind of um, portrayed in the public as, as, as forceful black men, uh, not angry, but but very forceful and, and uh, fighting against whatever racism and, and the world and the whole thing. And here I was, this little white guy with red hair and freckles, and and <laughs> and, and I'd come over and I'd Russell, uh, uh, Bill, um, is there a chance you're going to retire now? And Jim Brown looks up at me and he says, in a very deep voice, he said, "Retire? The man just won a world championship." And, you know, like in parentheses, you could hear, you knucklehead, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so I said, oh, okay, all right. And I faded away. Sure enough, Russell did retire a couple of months later and sold the story to Sports Illustrated for $10,000. Uh, but it was it was all interesting. It was, it was a lot of fun to do all of this stuff. You point out, too, how very different the NBA was back then. Uh, we were talking about it with your friend Bob Ryan a couple of days ago, that, that in those days when you both started covering the NBA, the Celtics, for instance, it was Red Auerbach wearing several different hats. And, and you point out that if somebody wanted to buy season tickets, Red was the guy who would show them around and, and let them know their options. Yeah, they, they had four people in the office. I mean, you know, it was like like an uh, like a neighborhood insurance agency or, a, a, you know, an accountant or something like that. Uh, and and there was Red. There was his secretary Mary Whalen. There was the publicity man Howie McHugh, and and there was Jeff Cohen, who was like 25 years old, and he was the son of uh, uh, of Sam Cohen, Red's best friend. And he 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 was called the assistant general manager, but he was the one that went off went out for coffee and donuts and stuff, you know. Uh, and that was that was it. That that was the Boston Celtics. You talk about it, you tell that to people now, and it's like you're you're talking about George Washington and his wooden teeth, you know. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite moments in the book is that you talk about your many years of playing pickup basketball. Which which Celtic was it who said to you, "Oh, you play with those fat guys"? Yeah, Don Nelson. Um, <laughs> he would come. To, it was the Newton YMCA, Newton, Massachusetts, and I would play every day with. With guys, and, and it was very competitive. There, there, there would always be like fifteen or twenty guys waiting for the next game, and there, and so everybody was playing, and, and it was it was very competitive and feverish. But when Nelson would come, he would run on the track up above the game, 
and everybody knew that Don Nelson of the Boston Celtics was running above the game. And and you could feel that the, the, the temperature got hotter. Everybody would was was diving for balls <laughs> and pushing and shoving and, and and trying to trying to do great things. And and I'm sure it's because nobody ever said that, but I'm sure it was because Nelson was up there. And so one day I, I never said anything to him at the Y, but one day after practice I said you know, I see you running up there sometimes, and uh, you know, there's basketball games down there, and uh, I'm I'm one of those guys playing. And he said, "You play with those little fat guys, huh?" <laughs> and and uh, you know, I I was hoping he would say, "Yeah, well, I saw you hit a couple of jump shots. I, you know, I thought it was, you know, those guys play hard and everything, but but it was just those little fat guys, and and that's that's kind of how we we remembered ourselves as little fat guys." <laughs> I thought it was very interesting too, Lee, that uh, what we what we think of as statistical analysis of basketball today, there was none of that uh, back in the late 1960s. And, and things like block shots, nobody even knows because no one really kept that statistic. No, they didn't keep that. They didn't keep turnovers. Uh, they didn't keep offensive rebounds. But the block shots, they should have been keeping because Will uh, had basically invented the block shot. And Chamberlain was a true connoisseur of the block shot. And the way the game was played, guys were driving to the basket a lot. And I mean, the game now, you see, they drive to the basket and they throw the ball out to the three-point line. But back then, guys were driving to the basic geometry of the game was the closer to the basket you got, the the better chance you had of scoring, you know. And uh, so block shots were everywhere. They were whacked all over the place, and uh, nobody really kept the stat. I mean, some writers would keep it um, for themselves, but but there was no, you know, certified NBA statistic for the whole thing. Lee, what was it about Bill Russell, either in terms of his physical ability or or mental skills, that, that made him the greatest winner in American professional sports history? I think he was very smart. I think he's very smart and analytical. Um, I, Bill Russell's head was was what made the Celtics and made him able to to contend with Wilt Chamberlain's body. I mean, Wilt Chamberlain's body. Um, the truest thing I say in the in the book is that in in the years since this series, a lot of players have come today, but not one player has been compared to Wilt Chamberlain. Nobody said. This is the next Will Chamberlain. A little maybe with Shaquille O'Neal, but not really. Um, so Russell, was he worked out all the angles, and he knew he, he knew things that, that I think an, a, analytics would, would, would kind of probably throw up out of the computer today. But he, he kind of figured them out in his head and knew the proper angles to come at, at, at guys and block their shots and and he certainly he blocked shots, and the and the the ball went to his teammates. Wilt blocked shots, and and it, you know, caromed off caromed off some guy in the fourth row who was eating a hot dog. You know, <laughs> uh, it, Russell was just very smart, and even even at thirty five, he he knew when to pick his spots and when to to just suck it up and and say, I can give you like three or four good minutes. Now you've got to score some baskets while I'm holding this Chamberlain down, you know? 
So, Lee, what do you think of that bright young man, the 25-year-old Lee Montville, would think of the 77-year-old Lee's look back? I don't know. I don't know. The 77-year-old says, uh, you, you know, maybe maybe he should have gotten to gotten into, uh, I, I don't know, some kind of financial kind of thing instead of, instead of being a sports writer. <laughs> you know, he'd have the yacht somewhere in... in, in, in Somewhere off the coast of Maine, and would be sailing around. Uh, but it, 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 it's all been good, you know. I mean, it, you go to games and, and and you write about games. It's a lot of fun, and and that has stayed the same from the twenty-five-year-old to the hundred-year-old right now. You know. Well, you've brought a lot of joy to readers and fans throughout the years. The new book is great. It is a wonderful read, a look back, and a unique. A memory of a remarkable season and series and a special time in our sports history. The book is Tall Men, Short Shorts, the 1969 NBA Finals, Wilt, Russ, Lakers, Celtics, and a very young sports reporter. Lee Monfield, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Terrific conversation with Lee Monfield about his fantastic new book, Tall Men, Short Shorts. I remember those days. So well, Carrie, it was, uh, as we heard from Lee, different NBA back then. But uh, I remember going to see the Celtics when they were off uh, in the hinterlands playing those exhibition games. They used to mm. come up here to Bangor, I think, every year. And I remember seeing them at the old Bangor Auditorium. Wow. It's amazing, the, the change. I mean, admittedly, 52 years, but the incredible changes that have taken place in the NBA, it's, it's hard to... Uh, wrap your mind around. The book helps a lot to do that, though. And not to be an old guy, but hey, I am what I am. I'm, I'm not sure all those changes are for the better, but uh, it is a wonderful book. Check it out. Tall Men, Short Shorts. A quick word from our friends at Cross Insurance. And when we come back, we'll hear about the brand new movie, Queen Pins, from writer-directors Aaron Gaudette and Gita Palapal. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. on downtown the podcast an appropriate song to discuss the upcoming film queen pins it's the story of a coupon counterfeiting scam but we're talking about millions of dollars based on a true story and turned into a movie by our friends writer directors Aaron Godet and Gita Palopoli the film stars Kristen Bell Paul Walter Hauser Vince Vaughn and a well a cast of of comedy all-stars Let's learn more about Queen Pins with Aaron and Gita. Let's talk about uh, the the trailer. It looks fantastic. You guys have to be pleased with that and, and the initial reaction you're getting, which has been universally positive. Thank you. Yeah, we're so excited about this movie, and we've been waiting for the trailers to drop for a while because we were hoping people would love it the way we loved the trailer. And just uh, Kristen Bell, Vince Vaughn, 
Paul Walter Hauser, Kirby Howell Baptiste. They're just dynamite to work with and gave us so much during a time when we thought, man, people really need to laugh. This has been a really stressful year. Let's really get them to laugh. <laughs> well, and yeah. looking, looking at that cast list, and you mentioned some of them, but my, my word, it's a who's who of comedy. Uh, Mark Evan Jackson, Stephen Root, who I absolutely love, Joel McHale. What a, what a great group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. We're yeah. so lucky. And yeah. part of that is having our great casting director, Allison Jones, who's cast like every yeah. great TV and film comedy in the last two decades. Yeah. So she... Yeah. She brings a lot of like heft to the mm -hmm. to the project. Everybody knows her. We finally said to Allison, and we finally wrote you a comedy because this, you know, we are not known for comedies. Right. We were joking. <laughs> Anybody, uh, especially in Maine, that knows our first two films, we would be the last people they would expect to make a comedy. But uh, it, it just felt like this story was so absurd with you know, because it's inspired by a true story. It's so yeah. absurd with coupons and postal inspector SWAT teams and whatever. <laughs> it just felt like it, it had to be a comedy. So for anybody who doesn't know and uh, has, has maybe seen the trailer now and has some clue, can you give a little bit of the, the plot synopsis for those who aren't aware of what Queen Pins is all about? Sure, sure. yeah. Queen Pins is the inspired by the story of these two women in Phoenix who counterfeit coupons and end up being part of a $40 million coupon scam. And a loss prevention officer in Postal Inspector, played by Vince Vaughn and Paul Walter Hauser, have to figure out who's behind the coupon scam and investigate it. So it becomes like we like to say two buddy comedies for the price of one. <laughs> right. Hopefully you're enjoying Kristen and Kirby, but also uh, Paul and Vince are such a great combo coming after them. And, you know, it really becomes like you're somehow you're kind of rooting for, for both, both pairs to uh, succeed. We're talking with uh, Aaron Gaudet and Gita Palapoli, Team A&G, here on Downtown. Their new movie, Queen Pins, uh, the trailer is out now, scheduled for release, correct me if I'm wrong, September 10th? Yeah, exactly. Opening theatrically September 10th, and then they haven't announced the date yet that it will also be on Paramount Plus um, streaming some, some date after that. That's and then wonderful. Showtime after that. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Now, I know as an actor, when you do comedy, uh, to, to make it work, you, you don't play it like comedy. You play it straight. Uh, you mm -hmm. look for the truth. Is it the same from a director's perspective? Yeah, I think so. And we, we would always tell the actors, like, you know, Kristen's character, Connie, would be like, Connie does not know that she's in a comedy. Like, Connie is definitely in a drama. Yeah, exactly. And I think we were always just looking for the most honest truthful version of every scene yeah. and then the humor would come out of that naturally. There's some crazy things that happen in the movie that are so absurd they could only happen in real life. And that's that's what we realized in this, you know, our whole, you know, brand as filmmakers is that we look for based on true stories and then make them into the narrative space in terms of films. And what we realized is, yeah, this story all the choices and decisions that were made there were so absurd that it's hard to believe it's actually true, but it's true. <laughs> now, obviously, filming it in the time of COVID is a challenge. Did you do it all on sound stages or did you do any location shooting? 
almost all locations. We had a couple days at the end on sound stages, but uh, there, there was a place in sort of east of Los Angeles where uh, this facility that we we're kind of able to like own this outdoor space where there were some homes and everything that we could kind of create a bubble to keep everyone safe and test everyone every day. And so we shot, you know, a huge portion of the movie and this facility that uh, if we didn't have that, it would have been really hard to go to all these different locations during COVID and, and keep everybody safe. Well, and the film is coming along at a good time, certainly as the country opens up, but we're doing very well here in the state of Maine. And I know, look, we've all been watching things on, on screens in our homes for a long time, but I know so many people are looking to get back in a movie theater and have that communal experience. And, and to me, it's, it's especially important when it's a comedy. You want to laugh with other people. Exactly. We felt the same way. I mean, when, when we were making, when we were in production on Queen Pins, we kept saying, like, how exciting would it be to get groups of people together in a movie theater to come and see this and laugh like they've never laughed before in such a long time? Because it's really hard right now, and I'm sure you see this as well, it's really hard to make comedies in Hollywood. It's just, you either have a very small budget, it's just not the right especially to open them in theaters. Exactly. You know, it, it yeah. is Marvel, Star Wars movies, or yeah. horror movies, or Pixar kids movies. Right. Comedies are sort of tough to still open theatrically. Um, yeah. But we always feel like that's the best way to experience a, a good yeah. comedy is in a theater full of people. Uh, yeah. yeah, We and, and when we knew... You know, initially we were supposed to make it just as the pandemic hit and everything closed down. So when we got it up and running during the pandemic, we really did lean in and say, you know, let's make this as sort of like commercially comical as we can because people need to laugh. So we we were sort of thinking like this can come out on the back end of this and give a reason for people to, to laugh. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. And of course, the movie business has changed so much in recent years that that opening weekend in, in many ways is everything. Is there some pressure that uh, you, you want that solid weekend opening on, on the 10th? We always we always feel the pressure for that. It's a, it is so important because it just signals to um, the industry that this is a movie audiences want to see. So coming out and seeing it in the theater, A, is just awesome for us, but B, it's also so critical for our careers to know that we can open it well on opening weekend. And I think when it opens, it's going to be opening like limited screens at yeah. the beginning. So it really is like sort yeah. of per screens, like how many people come out to those yeah. those theaters where it's playing uh, to hopefully uh, incentivize them to open it on more screens. But well, we want people to make sure to get out there that first weekend because the, the sooner you're out there, the better it will help and get it onto more screens. Now, at the same time, having that added advantage of being on a streaming service afterwards, that's got to feel good, too, because that, that gets a whole lot more eyes on your film than if it was just in theaters. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's allowing people to watch it on their own time and also to rewatch it. I think that was the thing that we loved about this movie is when we started testing it 
there were a lot of like fun scenes and quotable lines. And what we realized is people were watching it and then rewatching it when we were doing test screening. So that to us meant like, okay, we did our job, but also it, it plays for something really great when it gets to the streaming and then also to TV. Uh, we're talking with Aaron Gaudet, Gita Palopoli, Queen Pins. The trailer's out now. It comes to theaters on the 10th of September. Let's, um, I want to talk a little bit because we were, we were just talking about you guys on the show a few weeks ago when a story came out about the film you'd been working on previously, Crook County. Uh, you were working with Adam McKay, and, and it just didn't come together. Financing was a problem. Adam was, was very supportive of you guys in, in the article I saw and said, love the film, love the script. It, it's a movie I, I still want to see made at some point. But can you give us some of the story of what happened there? Yeah. And I mean, we, we agree with Adam. We yeah. still want to see it made. And, and yeah. partly, you know, we had, we had made uh, The Way We Get By and Beneath the Harvest Sky, which were both two small budget movies. And then we came out here and we wrote the script for Crook County and the budget was just so much bigger than anything we had ever made. And part of it was, you know, we had to prove ourselves at a studio level and which yeah. is really what Queen Pins was. When we set out to make Queen mm -hmm. Pins, when Crook County fell apart, we said, yeah. hey, we're going to go make a movie that's a little bit smaller budget, but show them that we can make something that's commercial. And when, you know, yeah. a couple of weeks ago, when it finished and it sold to Paramount Plus, we were kind of like, okay, mission accomplished. Like that was mm -hmm. a couple year process, but we feel yeah. like we came through on that. We increased our value as film directors in the industry. And what that means is now we get to make the films, a bigger film that we want to make. Still always very hard and struggling to get made, but it actually now allows us to make Crick County the way we want to make it with the right partners to be able to make it the way we had always envisioned it when we wrote it. But that's something we're we're actively working yeah. on now is trying yeah. to get that up and running again. Yeah. Now, you also were awarded a, a Guggenheim Fellowship. Can you explain that, what that's about and how it all worked for you? Um, well, we were so privileged to be able to have uh, been chosen as Guggenheim Fellows, which they... The Guggenheim supports mid-career artists and scholars and very different aspects of different fields. And um, it allowed us to be able to take the time to work on Crook County and also Queen Pins for a full year and, and get paid doing it. And so it's a great program and a great fellowship that supports artists in a, in a way that if they weren't there to support it, the art might not have been able to get made. I'm just curious, so what percentage of your time uh, is goes to the business end of filmmaking and what percentage is the creative aspect? Well, it's a good question because it, it, I think so much of it is in different phases. You know, right now we're starting to do more of the business side of making sure the marketing and distribution for our film is as we had envisioned and hoped. So that's just a lot of managing and dealings with the studios and publicity teams and marketing teams. So when we're writing, for example, you know, we could be writing for six to eight months on a project. And then when you go into production, like all of that to us is the creative. So that can be years of just working on the creative to then have, you know, six to eight months working on the business side of it. And when we first came out here, you know, for those first few years where we were trying to get Crook County off the ground, we were just writing. Mm -hmm. every day and, and wrote several scripts and now you know with queen pins and trying to get some of them made it's like 
sometimes less writing and more now trying to make the scripts that we've mm -hmm. we've kind of stockpiled. Well, I can't wait to see Queen Pins. I am such a Kristen Bell fan. I loved Veronica Mars, The Good Place, one of my favorite shows of all time. So don't mm -hmm. tell me she was awful to work with. I want to hear the stories about uh, how wonderful she was to work with. She, she was, was a absolutely, true joy. Yeah, she yeah. is a total pro. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it was just yeah. such a great sort of partner to partner up with. And mm -hmm. I mean, I, mm -hmm. she was such a champion in, in helping with COVID as well. She would always be trying to incentivize the crew to be careful because yeah. it wasn't really, yeah. we were keeping them very safe on set. It was really getting buy-in to do safe things when you're off the set, when you go home at night. So you're not bringing COVID back to the set. And she was always like championing that message. And she did she like a whole great. lottery on set where for all of the crew that um, didn't test positive, right. that were being safe, they should raffle off like I think a thousand bucks each week. Right. Um, you got to yeah. the end of the week and you, yeah. you everybody had negative COVID tests. There'd be a raffle. I mean, she was, yeah. she was amazing to work with. That's great. It got to be fun for a guy like uh, Paul Walter Hauser, too, who's been known for some, some pretty intense dramas to do something very different. He is fantastic in this film. Like, he he yeah. will definitely be known uh, for comedy after this movie. He's yeah. so funny in the movie. Yeah. And he was excited. He and, he and Vince had a relationship going um, before yeah. they both came on board. So they were excited to work together. And I think that really comes through in their their duo and their storyline. I saw, uh, Aaron, that uh, Nescom retweeted the trailer and we're proud to mention that uh, an alum is out there doing great things. Could, could you have imagined when you were a, a student here in, in Bangor that this is the path you'd be on? No. Uh, yeah, I think about that a lot, actually. And part of it was meeting Gita and having somebody else that shared my ambition to uh, get something like this off the ground. But uh, yeah, it, it was it feels like a long time ago. But uh, any uh, sometimes um, Nescom graduates will reach out to me that are like new out in Los Angeles and stuff. And it's always, uh, I always want to reach out and see if there's any way I can help them because I know there's probably not that many of us out here. I'm always impressed by the journey that Aaron's taken because the path that he's taken, he never had an easy path to get to Hollywood. And to see what he's accomplished from where he started is incredible. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, and of course around here, not much time goes by um, without hearing people still talk about the way we get by. That was a, such a beautiful film and told such an important story uh, for the people here in Maine. Yeah, yeah, and it was almost uh, it was a little more or a little less than a year ago when Jerry Mundy yeah. passed away, the, the third yeah. troop greeter that we right. profiled. And it was yeah. really hard to know that all three of them were were yeah. gone. I mean, there's, I, we just have to say that the way we get by will, no matter what we do in our careers, will be the most important film in our lives because Bill, Joan, and Jerry taught us so much about who we wanted to be as a couple, who we wanted to be as filmmakers, who we wanted to be just as human beings out in the world. And their dedication and commitment to just improving people's lives was so profound to us. And they had so much wisdom to share with us that 
we just hope the way we get by stays in people's orbit for a very, very long time. Even though here in the industry, whenever we meet someone, a producer or someone, and that's one of the first things we send to them if they want to know, like, who we are as people and filmmakers and they usually come back and tell us how much they were crying through it and (laughs) but it's like we were so proud of that movie and what it did for us well we are so excited to see queen pins and so happy for the both of you Uh, we wish you much success with the film uh hope it's a huge hope it opens even more doors for you uh we look forward to seeing crook county down the road as well and it's so appreciative of you making a little time for us today of Aww. course, and congratulations on 2,500 episodes. Yeah, we're honored to be on your 2,500 episode. How exciting. I, man, I, I hope you didn't clean up special just for this, because that, that would be <laughs> I did uh, yeah. go take a shower and comb yeah. my hair and everything. I was, wasn't planning on it. But. <laughs> That's more than I did today, so <laughs> I appreciate the effort. It's good to see you both. Uh, good luck, and thanks again. Great to see you, Rich. Great to see you. Looking forward to the movie again. Opens up in September. The trailer available out there now for Queen Pins. And our thanks to writer-directors Aaron Gaudet and Gita Palapoli. Thanks as well to Lee Monfield who talked about his terrific new book, Tall Men, Short Shorts. And thanks to you. If you like the podcast and you haven't already, we invite you to subscribe. Leave us a big old five-star review. Tell your friends. All of those will put you in good favor with us. Not that you weren't. That'll do it for this week's edition. For Kerry Haskell, this is Rich Kimball, and we will catch you next time on Downtown, the podcast.